title of my message this morning, Are People Your Priority? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, we read, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Once a college student, he stayed up all night studying for an important science test. When the kids entered the classroom, he noticed ten birds mounted along the front of the class. Each stuffed bird had a bag over its head. All you could see were its legs. The test consisted of identifying each bird, its genus, its species, its habitat, its feeding regimen, even its migratory patterns, simply by looking at its legs. Well, this angered the student. How unfair can a test be? He had studied all night for this. The more he stared at those silly birds, the more outraged he became. Finally, the young man exploded. He threw his paper down on the professor's desk. He shouted out, what a stupid, idiotic test. How can you tell the difference between birds by just looking at their legs? Then he stomped out. Well, it was a large class, and the professor, he didn't know the student, and so he asked. He said, excuse me, what's your name? And that's when the boy, he pulled up his pants legs like this, and he said, guess, mister, you guess. (laughs) And I tell you that story to ask you a question. When you're treated harshly, When you're taken advantage of, when maybe you're tested unfairly, how do you respond to the injustice? You see, there's something in all of us that wants to explode, to get even, to get back at the person who's harmed us. Revenge, repay, retaliate. These are all natural reactions. Seven-year-old Billy started to cry. His mom rushed into the room to discover his two-year-old sister with a clump of his hair hanging through the fingers of her clutched fist. Well, the mother tried to comfort her son. Oh, Billy, your little sister, she didn't mean to hurt you. She just doesn't understand yet. A few minutes later, the little girl was screaming. When the mother entered the room, little Billy looked up at her and said proudly, he under- She understands now. 
I mean, we cheer at the movies when that Clint Eastwood-type hero points his long-nosed revolver at the villain and puts him in his place. Go ahead, make my day. We love expressions like, do unto others before they do unto you. Or shoot first, ask questions later. Or I don't get mad, I just get even. When our rights are infringed upon, the American way is to call a lawyer. Stick it to the other guy. Relish a little revenge. Actually, the human reaction isn't to get even. It's to one-up the other guy. You kick me in the shins, and my desire isn't just to kick you in the shins. It's to kick your shins and then stomp your toe and maybe scratch out an eye and perhaps knock your teeth down your throat. It's back at you, a little harder than you hit me. Former Soviet premier Nicholas Khrushchev, he once said, There is much that communists have in common with Christ, but I cannot agree with him when he says, When you are hit on the right cheek, turn the left cheek. I believe in another principle. If I am hit on the left cheek, I hit back on the right cheek so hard that the head might fall off. This is my sole difference with Christ. And yet that is a very significant difference, is it not? You see, the human tendency is a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. It's not an eye for an eye, but it's an eye for an eye and a foot. The Old Testament principle, lex talionis, or the law of retaliation, sometimes called the law of tit for tat, wasn't intended to promote vengeance. It was intended to limit punishment and temper its fairness. The penalty should fit the crime, no more, no less. Retribution should match, not exceed the injury. Deuteronomy 19 verse 21 states, Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And when God gave this law, He gave it to the leaders of the nation. It was a tool to be used in the hands of government to execute justice, to restrain evil. The Pharisees, though, they took this rule and they used it as an excuse for personal vendetta. This was never God's intention. God said in Deuteronomy 32 verse 35, vengeance is mine. This was never to be a rule governing personal interactions. Vigilante justice was never God's plan. God intended for human government to keep the peace. This is what Paul states in Romans 13. Rulers are God's ministers to you for good. For if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. It's only on very rare occasions that we're justified in taking matters into our own hands. You see, God knew that when the only premise that humans lived by is eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, then all that would make for is an eyeless and toothless society. And this is why Jesus provides His followers a better way. You see, the Lord knew that you can never win by trying to even the score. In His sermon, this marvelous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells His followers that God wants us motivated by love, not revenge, not retribution. He gives us a new way of relating to people. He gives us a lesson on love. Jesus begins in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. And almost immediately, we all start squirming in our seats. How can he be serious? In the dog-eat-dog world I live in, the moment I drop my guard, then they'll walk all over me. If I don't stand up for myself, who will? If I don't resist evil, I'll get bowled over. You know, Jesus makes some difficult statements in the Sermon on the Mount, but none are more challenging than what he says here in verse 39. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Before we tackle the meaning of Jesus' controversial statement, let's take a look at what we know he doesn't mean. First, understand Jesus isn't stripping governments of their right to wage war and defend their citizens. The Sermon on the Mount is for individual believers, not governments. God's calling on the church, you and I, and on the government are radically different. Government keeps the peace. The church offers peace with God. Government promotes justice. The church shows mercy. Government makes laws. The church extends love. Government imprisons. The church pardons. The roles are very different. And thus, when a nation's citizens are threatened, as an agent of the government, it is the soldier's duty to take up arms. Second, understand, Jesus isn't stripping people of their right to self-defense. Notice Jesus is very specific here. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, why does he say the right cheek, not the left cheek or an A cheek? You see, statistics show that 90% of the population is right-handed. So how does a right-hander hit you on the right cheek? There's only one way. And that's with the back of the hand. And in almost every culture, a backhanded slap was more of an insult than it was a violent attack. Jesus is saying to us that if we're insulted, then we need to slough it off. We need to turn the other cheek. But he isn't saying that if I'm walking down the street and I get mugged, I need to let the thugs beat me up and take my wallet. No, I can defend myself. I'm not loving anybody by letting them beat me up. Reminds me of the Irish boxer who turned evangelist. He had come to town. He was setting up his tent for service that night. All of a sudden, up strolled two roughnecks. One of the punks took a swing at him, landed a glancing blow. The preacher stuck out his chin, and he took another punch off his other cheek. That's when he jumped back, rolled up his shirt sleeves, and shouted, The Lord gaveth me no further instruction, and pow! He landed a combination of jabs and hooks and uppercuts. If someone breaks into my house to harm me and my family, then I am responsible for defending those under my care. I got a gun, and it's not a collectible. I pray I never have to, but I got it to use it if need be. I do no one any favor by letting my family be victimized. And then third, Jesus is not suggesting here that we become doormats in personal relationships. Turning the other cheek isn't allowing yourself to be repeatedly abused or used. Hey, sometimes we love another person by standing up to them and opposing their evil actions. Martin Luther once described a person who had misinterpreted this text as that crazy saint 
who let lice nibble at him and refused to kill any of them, maintaining that he had to suffer and could not resist evil. Obviously, that kind of interpretation is ridiculous. The New Testament describes the committed Christian with masculine metaphors, like boxer, runner, soldier, sailor. Jesus himself was certainly no doormat. Don't think for a second that Jesus was some weak, mamby-pamby person who allowed himself to be manipulated and controlled and abused and pushed around by people. He bounced the money changers out of the temple with his bare knuckles. In the city of Nazareth, he walked through an angry mob of potential lynching. Our Lord Jesus was rugged and strong and assertive. Oh yes, he suffered for our sin, but he did so voluntarily. Jesus endured his suffering as part of God's plan. In fact, at no time was Jesus' strength more apparent than on the cross. Jesus was spat at, beaten, pierced. He could have called for legions of sword-swinging seraphim and special ops cherubim, but he ordered his troops to stand down. He took it on the chin to pay for our sin. His suffering was for a higher goal. And when God calls on us to suffer, there is always a higher purpose. There was a town in Mexico that had an annual passion play. One year, the day before the performance, the actor who was playing Jesus got sick and had to be replaced. They needed someone who was the right height and the right weight. Well, the only guy available was this real unsavory sort of person. The organizers were so desperate they took a chance. What they didn't explain to the poor guy, though, was how he'd be treated on his way to the cross. That he'd be hit and spit on and cursed. During the play, the old boy did as best he could. He took took it as long as he could. Finally, as they were lifting him up onto the cross, he turned to the men who were playing the Roman soldiers and growled, I'm going to get you guys after the resurrection. Well, Jesus also could have gotten the Romans and the Jews after the resurrection, but he didn't. In fact, it was from the cross that Jesus asked his Father to forgive them, for they knew not what they did. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to sit in silence while 1.5 million unborn babies are murdered in America. Or to allow our boss to mistreat us without filing a grievance. Or to let our neighbor beat the stuffing out of his wife without calling the police. These are not the situations Jesus has in mind. Jesus said earlier in chapter 5 verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jewish religion was a loveless brand. It was a mechanical adherence to ritual. It was cold. It was heartless. And what Jesus is teaching his followers is that in all that we do, our motivation is love. We need to love the people around us, even our enemies. Thus, if a guy breaks into my house at night, I should should love him. I should shoot him in the leg and then hold him there till the police arrive so he can get the help that he needs. I should love him. But I'm not loving him by letting him victimize my family. When Jesus tells us to give to him who asks, he isn't advocating indiscriminate giving. I mean, hand an alcoholic a hundred bucks, you're not helping him, you're hurting him. 
In this passage, Jesus is teaching us that love, not revenge, not retaliation, should be our motivation. Here, here, here it is in another way. Other people, not our own rights, should be our top priority. And this is a big pill for Americans to swallow. For nothing is as important to us as our personal rights. We reverence the Bill of Rights. People march for their rights. It's our patriotic duty to stand up for our rights. And if our rights are ever violated, even in the slightest way, we're to call our senator or our lawyer or the press. Our society has made an idol out of our own personal rights. It's what we value most. And yet Jesus is telling us that as Christians, there is something more important than our rights, and that's the people around us. In verse 39, when Jesus tells us not to resist an evil person, the term resist, it means to make an enemy of someone. Jesus is saying that other people may view you as their enemy, but don't you make an enemy out of them. As Abraham Lincoln once said, the best way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. And we do that by prioritizing other people even above our own rights. Never let a demand for your rights supersede your concern for the soul of another person. In the long run, our love for people is more important than our rights. And here Jesus mentions four rights in particular that often get in the way of people loving people. First is our right to dignity. You see, another person's insult shouldn't stop me loving them. Second is our right to possessions. His soul should be more important to me than my shirt. Third is our right to convenience. I should forfeit what suits me in order to save him. And then fourth, our right to money. I would rather a person survive than me thrive. You see, love is willing to forego my rights. Again, hear Jesus' words, verse 39. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, are you willing to endure an insult, an indignity, to sacrifice your pride for the soul of another person? Oh, the ongoing feud between Winston Churchill and Lady Astor, it was legendary. Once Lady Astor, she reprimanded Churchill, Why, Winston, you're drunk. Churchill replied, And Astor, you're ugly but I'll be sober in the morning. How do you respond to that kind of barb, that kind of degradation, that kind of insult? It stings, doesn't it? Words do hurt. How do you reply when someone insults your work or they belittle your child or they criticize your decorating ladies? Oh, that's a big deal. I'll never have anything to do with her again. That's the attitude Jesus is combating. Don't let your pride write off another person. Oh, nobody can say that to me and get away with it. Well, why not? What's so special about you that you can't be criticized, even unfairly? See, it's been said, where pride is present, love is absent. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches, love suffers long, bears all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Jesus is telling us to swallow our pride, 
Turn the other cheek. Refuse to let what you think is your right to your dignity hinder you from loving that other person. Verse 40 deals with our right to possessions. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. In Jesus' day, everyone wore two garments, a tunic or an inner robe and then a cloak or an outer robe. The cloak doubled as a bedroll. Under Hebrew law, you could sue a man for his tunic, his inner garment. You've heard the expression, take the shirt right off my back. This is its origin. You could sue for a man's inner garment, but not his cloak or outer garment. For without a coat, how can a man survive the cold nights? And yet Jesus is saying that if a man really needs your tunic, be willing to give him your cloak also. The point being, his soul is more important than your possessions. How often do we put stuff ahead of people? Have you ever missed an opportunity to extend love because you were too stingy with your stuff? You know, that's pretty shallow. Once there was a woman whose husband had bought her a brand new car. It was just two days off the lot when she scraped the side of it of another vehicle as she was pulling into a parking lot. What was she going to tell her husband? When the policeman asked for her proof of insurance, she reached into the glove box. She pulled out an envelope. Inside the envelope was a card and a note from her husband. The note read, Honey, in case of an accident, remember it's you I love, not the car. Here was a man who valued the people in his life more than his earthly possessions. Have you ever put stuff ahead of your spouse? Have you ever made money more important than your marriage? There's a scene from an old movie where a horse owner, he chews out his daughter for riding his prize stallion. Ugly words are exchanged. She stomps out of the room. His sister tells him, you treat that wretched colt better than your own daughter. Some of us treat the car we've restored or our precious furniture or our golf clubs with more care and gentleness than we do our own kids. Jesus is telling us, never value your possessions more than people. And the same is true with our right to convenience. This is the point in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. You see, under Roman law, a soldier could legally recruit a civilian to carry his armor one Roman mile. Just a tad shorter than our mile. Needless to say, this could be an inconvenience to the person recruited. I mean, you could be late for work. And thus, the average Jew would count out every step. And when he reached that 5,280th foot, that was it. He'd throw down the armor, he'd thumb his nose at the soldier, and he'd go off, go his way. There was no love in this. There was no concern for the soldier. And this is why Jesus calls his followers to take a different approach. Rather than the inconvenience Rather than view it as an inconvenience, his followers should see the same circumstances as an opportunity. Jesus is saying, don't just go one mile, go two. Let that soldier know that God loves him and that you do too. Seek to build a friendship with him. Use it as an occasion to convey God's love. And you see, this is how Jesus wants us to view our inconveniences. Perhaps you've been sent to an office across town, and it is such a hassle. 
Or maybe you're being required to work longer days. Don't just work eight hours. Go another hour and be happy about it. Do it because you care about the person who's asked for your help. Love puts people above our right to convenience. And if you really understand this, trust me, you'll never lack opportunities to share the gospel or people who will want to listen. And then verse 42, don't put your right to money above your love for people. He says, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Of course, Jesus isn't assuming that we have, that we should just give out indiscriminately. Notice he's assuming that we do have some money. We do have some savings. We have put some money back. There's nothing wrong with saving for a rainy day. And Jesus isn't telling us that our savings should be handed out to anyone and everyone who's looking for some money. All giving should be accompanied by discernment. But here's what Jesus is saying. Never let your own financial security become more important to you than someone else's eternal destiny. All we have belongs to God and should be made available for His purposes. Don't be more concerned with adding cash to your stash than showing the love of Jesus to the people around you. Once the cows and the pigs, they were discussing why the cows were more popular than the pigs. One of the pigs kind of snorted and said, it's not fair. All you cows give is milk and cream, but we pigs give bacon and ham. People even pickle our feet. I don't see how you cows are more popular than us pigs. The cow thought for a minute and replied, maybe it's because we give while we're still living. Hey, one day, we'll give it all to somebody. Probably a lot to the government. None of us are going to be able to take it with us. And Jesus is telling us that true righteousness loves people more than it worries about its own security. Love for people needs to be a Christian's priority. Not our dignity or our possessions or our convenience or our money. And so my question to you this morning, are people your priority? People top Jesus' priority list, and hopefully the same is true for us, Even people who were considered enemies. Listen to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I mean, it's hard to always love your friends. Have you ever been betrayed or disappointed by a friend, even a church friend? Of course you have. We all have. I I, I like the little jingle. To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. It's tough enough to love a friend, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stretches us far beyond our limits. He expects us to love our enemies. Lord, you got to be kidding. Are you serious? I'm supposed to love the gal who's telling vicious rumors about me? Or the boss who wants to get me fired? Or the next-door neighbor who plays his music into the wee hours of the morning? Or the guy down the street who can't take care of his 357 stray cats? 
Or that person who parks his 18-wheeler in front of his house, therefore my house? Is a wife really supposed to love the husband who turns his back on her and runs off with that younger trollop? Is a man supposed to love the competitor who wants to put him out of business? Is a girl supposed to love the animal who raped her? How can a man love the drunk driver with all the DUIs who hits his son and who kills his son? Are you telling me I'm supposed to love the sperm donor who never cared enough to bother to check in and find out how life was going for the sunny side? Well, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, I'm going to answer this question for you. The answer to all of these questions is yes and more. For Jesus commands us to love, bless, do good, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Yes, we need to love even our enemies. For Jesus knows that the greatest force on planet earth isn't a tornado or a tsunami or a lightning bolt or a volcano or even the splitting of the atom. The mightiest power is love. It's been said to injure an enemy puts you below him. To take revenge on an enemy makes you even. It's only by forgiving an enemy that you rise above him. Kill your enemies and you'll only make more. Their sons will seek revenge and hunt you down. The only way to truly destroy your enemies is by turning them into friends. And the only way you can do that is with love. As Jesus mentions in verse 43, the Jews taught you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And they were half right. The Old Testament did say to love your neighbor, but nowhere did it teach for you to hate your enemy. And our enemy is anyone who's undeserving of our love or unloving in return. You see, your enemies are the folks in your life who don't deserve the time of day. They're the leeches. All they care about is themselves. They take and take and take some more. They suck the blood out of everyone around them and never bother to give back. An enemy is a person least deserving of your love, yet this is the person the love of Jesus has you target. And understand exactly what he means when Jesus tells us to love our enemy. There are four Greek words that get translated by our one English word, love. Storge is parental love. It's shared within a family. Eros is romantic love. It's sexual in nature. Phileo is brotherly love. It's the love between friends. But fourthly, there's agape. And this is the love spoken of most often in the New Testament. It's supernatural love. It's God's love. And it's the love that's spoken of here. You see, agape love is more than a feeling or just goosebumps. It's a decision. These other types of love are generated when conditions are ripe. But agape is an act of the will. It's a commitment to love that's unaffected by my mood. And this is the love of Jesus. When his body buckled under the weight of the wood and the spikes were hammered into his flesh, there was nothing pleasurable about his experience. It was about Jesus proving his commitment to the will of God and his love for us. 
and how much He desired for us to be saved. God would never ask a rape victim to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward her assailant or a wife to get giddy over a husband who's abused her. That would be inhumane. Notice Jesus doesn't even ask us to like our enemy. Just love him. Love him with the love of God. Richard Linsky writes, I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. I cannot like a lying, slanderous fellow who has insulted me again and again. But I can, by the grace of Christ, love them all, see what is wrong with them, and work to free them from their vicious ways. It's interesting when Jesus tells us to love our enemy, the first specific action he mentions isn't a handshake or a hug or a hand out. He just tells us to pray for them. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Before you even face your enemy or go to your enemy, pray for him. For once we make our enemy the object of our prayers, then something happens in us that softens our heart. Pity replaces resentment. Compassion replaces bitterness. When I look at my enemy through God's eyes, I get a new perspective. I can look past the hurt he's inflicted on me and I can see the hurt that's been motivating him. One author writes, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm our hostilities. Notice how Jesus begins verse 45. He says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Realize, we are never more related to Jesus than when we love our enemies. This is the greatest opportunity you have for Christ's likeness. And yet, this is the greatest point of our own failure, is it not? For there is no way that I or you can love my enemies in my own strength. It becomes possible only when I realize that what God asked me to do He equips me to do. The rest of verse 45 reads, For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Realize, none of us deserve to see another sunrise. Hey, if you got what was coming to you, it would rain on your neighbor's yard, not yours. But God shows everybody a common grace. Just as a rain-soaked lawn or a golden tan has nothing to do with the merits of its owner, likewise, God's forgiveness and His acceptance has nothing to do with our worthiness. Our history with God is all grace. And now He asks us to treat others with that same grace. Notice verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? I mean, what's the big deal? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In the first century, no profession was as hated as tax collectors. These guys worked for Rome. They were enemy collaborators. They were traitors. They were greedy, seedy folks. Yet even a tax collector loves a person who loves him. It doesn't take God for you to love a friend. Oswald Sanders writes, The master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. The God quality in our lives, or the lack thereof, will always be seen in how we treat our enemies. He says, And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? 
Do not even the tax collectors do so? I've heard it said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. Again, you're never more like God than when you welcome and love your enemy. Ed McCulley was one of five missionaries to venture into the rainforest of Ecuador to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. Just two days after the men had arrived, they were murdered by the natives they'd hoped to reach. Rather than grow bitter, Ed's father prayed, Lord, let me live long enough to see those, those fellows saved who killed our boys, that I may throw my arms around them and tell them I love them because they love my Christ. Two of those widows, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, refused to let bereavement make them bitter. These women returned to Ecuador to share the gospel with the very, the very Indians who had murdered their husbands. Ten years after their husbands martyred them, a group of Aka Indians, now Christians, traveled to England to testify of the love of Jesus. You see, love had conquered hate. That's why I say the greatest power on this planet today is the power of love. Do you believe in love? C.S. Lewis made a profound statement. Do not waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. In other words, if God is in you, then have faith enough to give His power and His love a chance to kick in. Don't worry so much about your feelings. Put your faith in God's faithfulness. He'll come through in you. Which brings us to verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's spoken of here isn't a moral or a religious perfection. It's love. It's more than an outward righteousness. It's putting love before your pride and your possessions and your convenience and your finances. It's a love for your enemies, not just your friends. And when you love in that way, there is a perfection about it. There is the same perfection in that that there is in God. You are loving in the way that God loves you. Martin Luther King once said, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And you see, here's the irony. Hold on to the hate in your heart, and your heart will harden. Infection will spread. Wounds will fester. Fever rises. Grow bitter. And the healing that you desire will elude you. I know there's some people in this room today who've been holding on to their bitterness and holding on to their hurts. Oh, they want to be healed. But they, they think that by holding on to their hurts that there's some healing in that. There's not. You'll only make yourself harder. The healing is in the loving. Choose to love. Choose to prioritize people. Even love your enemies at least to the point of praying for them. And a mysterious healing will begin to occur in your heart. Here's a profound truth. Love cures people. Both the ones who receive it and the ones who give it. The Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück was the site of 92,000 murders 
of Jewish men and women and children. And in the horrific ruins, there was a note near the body of a dead child. It read, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not only remember the suffering they have inflicted on us. Remember the fruits we bought thanks to this suffering. Our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart, which has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. There's just something beautiful about that. Something amazing about that. I mean, love for one's enemies is not what you'd expect to, you'd, you would expect to find within the flames of Holocaust. And yet God's love pops up in the strangest places. God's love has healing properties. You may never see love win over your enemy, but love will save you from the bottomless pit of bitterness. Well, here's my closing thought. It's my question for you. Are people your priority in life? More than your dignity? More than your possessions? More than your convenience? More than your money? Is love what matters most to you? When your enemies attack, fight back with love.